Hello, I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. This is a bi-weekly conversation podcast about the ideas, events, and phenomena that shape our lives. On this, our inaugural episode, I ask, can democracy survive the internet? My guests today are Dr. Elizabeth Dubois and Mr. Alex Boutlier. Dr. Dubois is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Ottawa. Mr. Boutlier is a national politics reporter for the Toronto Star. Each lives in Ottawa. Today, democracy finds itself in a global recession. It's survived coup attempts, rebellions, economic crashes, and and wars. But that isn't to say that it's the default or, or an achievement that once we unlock remains available to us at our pleasure. So we need to ask ourselves, can we preserve self-government? Can we improve it? Can we welcome new democracies and, and perhaps drive old autocracies into oblivion? Climate change is going to be a singular threat to manage if we wish to do any of that. Inequality is going to be another. The internet, our focus today, may be a third. Now let's start by discussing the types of threats that we're dealing with. The internet is a network. It's populated by users like you and me who have tools at our disposal. Democracy is a system of government. It includes, among other things, free and fair elections for accountability and legitimacy, and a public sphere in which we exchange information and communicate our preferences to one another and to policymakers. So, given that, how do digital technologies threaten those things? Let's start with you, Elizabeth. Thanks. Really glad to be here. We've got, you know, a bunch of different issues that I think get roped into this, is the internet killing democracy conversation? Um, And I think there are a few that are more pressing than others. So I think one is, when we're talking about the internet, we're actually talking about a bunch of different technology companies that have built tools on top of what we know of as Hmm. the internet. And I think it's the fact that these are often multinational companies that have as their base uh, goal to get their advertisers Mm. to spend more dollars, to make sure that people who are actually paying for them are the happy ones. Mm -hmm. And that typically does not overlap with the public good in a country like Canada. And so when we're thinking about these companies and how they make money, Often it's by keeping very secret what their algorithms are to decide how you get information on your newsfeed or in those search results. Mm-hmm. And that amount of uh, lack or a lack of transparency, rather, really hinders our ability to understand how information is getting to us. It really makes it difficult for us to understand who's getting what message from a politician mm-hmm. or some other organization, which really threatens our ability to connect with each other as citizens and make sure that we're informed when we're going to the polls. I mean, the initial goal of the internet was, or at least the promise was, freedom, democratization, connection, and now it is a bunch of plutocrats who are trying to keep our eyeballs glued to apps, right? I mean, it's, it's, so, you know, it's been called, I mean, social media, for instance, are um, a low-trust space, uh, Apps are, and social media have been called, our phones, in fact, have been called the slot machines in our pockets, right? We keep pulling the one-armed bandit. We get red notifications mm-hmm. uh, that are meant to keep us dialed in. 
uh, one, uh, someone's called it a Skinner box, you know, the, uh, named after B.F. Skinner, who designed these boxes to, to reward and punish rats and attempt to, to study their behavior. We are effectively trapped in a Skinner box, right? I mean, that's the sense that I get from, from reading through. I mean, wh- what, do you, but what do you do about that? If, if this has been captured by massively powerful companies and the free market system, some of these companies are larger than states. Wh- what do you do about that? I, I think that um, a lot of the discussion has focused on that side of the equation, on what these plutocrats and multinational companies are doing to us yeah. in the space of the internet. I'm increasingly coming around to the idea that maybe we have to look at the other side of that and and focus on what users are doing and what users are responsible for. Hmm. Because I think when you focus totally on the one side of how Facebook or Google or Amazon are collecting you know, all this data about you, controlling your life, controlling what you see, um, I think it becomes a very hopeless conversation very quickly. Yes. And, you know, you're quite right to point out that the internet was created as this incredibly empowering, democratizing, educational tool, connective tool. And I think we've lost some of that in the conversation, not just because of who runs the internet right now. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, I don't have any uh, answers on that, but, I, but I'm increasingly thinking about what we as users and participants in this system um, have to take responsibility for and, and have to, um, you know, really sort of bring a sort of civic mindedness to, to, you know, what we say and do online and, mm-hmm. and how we participate online. So I just, maybe uh, Elizabeth, you probably have some very good thoughts on that, but, but in terms of, you know, focusing the question more on, you know, what we can do as, you know, citizens in this ecosystem rather than what these companies are doing to us. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, and and it actually ties back to a bit of a, a pet peeve I have of how we frame this generally. We often talk about the internet was created, and it was supposed to democratize, and and there were a small group of people who were these cyber utopians mm-hmm. who were like, this is going to be amazing, everyone's going to get to do whatever they want, and actually it was really seen as a libertarian right. opportunity, which is not necessarily in line with how we view democracy in all of these different countries Mm -hmm. where democracies exist, first of all. Second of all, there were a bunch of people who said, no, there is nothing inherent in the way that technology was developed that requires that to be the outcome. And indeed, we've seen that that has not been the outcome. And that all comes down to the fact that it depends on how people use it. It depends Mm -hmm. on how people choose to interact. It depends on how people interact with each other via those tools. And so... I think this is where some of those conversations around how do we equip people with the knowledge they need to be literate. And and we talk kind of of news media literacy a whole mm-hmm. bunch because uh, that traditionally has been the main way people get informed about their political systems and has been demonstrated to be crucial for democracies. But digital literacy plays in, too. We can't mm-hmm. have people making use of these tools in ways that are helpful for democracy unless they understand how these tools actually work. Right. Cass Sunstein in, in Hashtag Republic writes about how the, the public forums used to be on streets and parks. You had newspapers, but that was limited to what you could fit in column inches, general interest magazines. So people would take to the streets, they'd take to the park. That was a public space dedicated to, among other things, public action. A lot of that's migrated online. But that's not, it might be public, but it's not public in the same way that a street is public or or a park is public. It is privately 
owned, perhaps publicly traded, but it, it's, it's a private space in a different sense. What happens when the interests of, of the public uh, and the interests of democracy clash with the interests of, of capital and shareholders? So, I mean, how do you deal with that, that tension between the public interest and the public good and the fact that the public sphere is now online in private space? Tiny little question there. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, and we've good. got four minutes. Okay. So, no, just, you can solve it, right? Yeah. I would be much higher paid if I could solve that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, th I think not to sort of quibble with the premise, but this notion that pre-internet, you know, we all congregated in the park um, to, you know, talk about collective action, I think yeah. is maybe a bit rosy colored. I think so too. Um, but nevertheless, I think the, the, the point that political action and political discussion has moved online, in some cases in closed forms, in closed spaces, um, I think does have an atomizing effect. You know, in, in, some, in some respect, it's, it's difficult to talk of a public anymore, yeah. right, or an electorate. Um, you know, Elizabeth's done a lot of research on echo chambers, and I think your position is that they're somewhat overstated. But nevertheless, um, you know, it's not like Facebook pages or, or you know, Reddit forms are, you know, some kind of, you know, direct democracy where we come together and yeah. you know, hash out our differences. So I think that there is an atomizing effect that makes it difficult to, just to, to conceive of a capital P public or a capital mm -hmm. E electorate. And I think what you've seen on from the political side is an attempt, you know, just like the classic micro-targeting and, and pandering to demographics, I think you, you're seeing political actors trying to harness those kind of um, different small-p publics sure. um, to, to further their gains. Whether or not that's in the public good, you know, uh, right. in general, I, I'm not sure. But I think, there, I, I think it's undeniable that there has been an atomizing effect um, in, in political and, and democratic discourse. Yeah, I I mean, I would largely agree with what you've just said, but the next step then is, why do we think that is necessarily a bad thing for democracy? Hmm. And so if we're looking at the potential positives of micro-targeting, well, you're getting messages to people that actually matter to them in their daily lives. You're maybe connecting with communities of people that already have bonds and have the support that is often required to convince people it's worthwhile going to the polls. If you are part of a social group that are voters, you are more likely to go be a voter yourself. Right. And so if we're tapping into these existing social networks and communities, then maybe we're actually able to increase voter engagement. There's still definitely this problem of you could end up not really making decisions based on what's good for society, but making decisions on based what's good for you. Which, Which we do he, anyway. Right? Exactly. Yeah. We've already done that in the past. And that comes to a bit of a question about, well, what do you think democracy should be? How do we think voters should be deciding? And a lot of people, when you really dig into it, get to the point of, well, it's kind of up to the person to decide whether or not their informed vote is what's best for them or what's best for their community. And we need to leave it to them to make up that decision. I think where the danger comes in, I, I agree with everything you said. Um, uh, we're going to be in violent agreement this entire podcast. <laughs> but um, I think the danger comes in, um, you know, in what we saw in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, yeah. where those subsets of the population can be targeted with misinformation or misleading information in order to further, you know, further a divide between groups, but also you know, sort of call into question the very nature of our shared reality, right? You, if you don't have a shared reality, a shared understanding of basic facts, not 
you know, interpretation of facts, but the basic facts of the matter among a, a population, then I don't think you can really have a, a, a true democracy. And so, so I think that I think that's where the danger comes in. In when these groups cl- close off, um, they can be manipulated um, in a way that doesn't further the, the sort of democratic project. So I think, yeah. So I think there are at least two sorts of problems that the internet has made for democracy. One is the problem of the information space, which has become complicated with misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, micro-targeting for nefarious purposes. I'm thinking of, for instance, um, you know, phony Facebook groups that micro-target um, disaffected uh, working-class white people in Houston and Muslim activists and put them together in counter-protests, which is what happened during 2016. So there's the problem of the information space. Then there's the problem of, of questioning the legitimacy of of institutions. So now we have the problem of uh, we may not be able to trust that the procedures are fair and legitimate. This 2016 in the United States presidential election is a good example of that. I think that is less of a threat in Canada, the, the legitimacy of the institutions, although there's some attacks on journalism, than, for instance, um, the, the, the sort of occluding of the information space. And that is what I worry about the most. So, so how do we start to think about the fact that if we want robust freedom of speech, we're going to have to deal with people who are going to be circulating poor information? Right. Well, you should subscribe to a newspaper. I know, yes. I know one in particular that is very interesting. Um, no, um, on, the, on, the, on the information side, I mean, we have lost that sort of gatekeeper role in journalism, right? I mean, of... of providing a sort of backbone of basic facts about the political situation that everybody can then interpret and form opinions on. Um, you, you know, you may say that that's never been the case, that journalism has always been slanted or yeah. or what have you. That's a conversation we can have. We're better today than, than we were during the yellow journalism era. I think so. William At least Hurst. I strive to be. Yeah. Yeah. You're not uh, starting the Spanish-American War at the Toronto Star. Not yet. It's a, that's a long-term goal, I guess. Um, but um, if you look, we tend to um, transpose the situation in the United States onto Canada sometimes when we talk yeah. about this stuff. And if you look, I believe it was Edelman's Trust Barometer that came yeah. out earlier this year that showed that I think it was 7 in 10 Canadians still have um, faith in the, the news media to report the news um, without bias or yeah. slant. Um, and I think that that's incredibly important. I, I know I'm I'm personally interested in this uh, for obvious reasons, but but I think that that, that tells me that the situation in Canada um, is, is less likely to devolve into a situation where, you know, the legitimacy of elections are called into question or yes. the legitimacy of, um, um, you know, governments are called into question. I think that, that we're much more resilient to that here than, than perhaps our cousins to the south. Yeah. Paper ballots help as well. Paper ballots are very, <laughs> very is- easy to count, yeah. On that front about, you know, the role of journalism and how there is still perceived value in it by Canadians and and trust, um, it's also worth thinking about, well, how are people actually engaging in political information collection practices, right? right? How are they actually going and getting information? And, And that political information is not just news, but news is a huge part of it. When we look at the habits of people in their daily lives, typically we see the average approach is to just kind of get it from a bunch of different sources. If you are really interested in politics, then you probably 
uh, have a Twitter feed or you go to Reddit or wherever where you get all kinds of links sent to you from a bunch of different sources. And then you probably have discussions with your friends and family, your colleagues, and then maybe you have a couple of outlets that you go to regularly. You subscribe to a particular outlet, so you check their front page every day. Then, when there's a key issue or something really doesn't sit right with you, you're questioning it, that's when you go to your one or two trusted sources and you check. Or maybe you go to a search engine, you type in whatever the questionable headline was, you see whether or not your top few trusted sources are also saying the same thing. Right. And... People who are politically interested do this more than those who aren't. So really the kind of risk group we've got are people who are not already pretty politically engaged and literate. Right. But even those people who don't think of themselves as a politico, they still do that same thing where they verify when they need to and they rely on traditional journalism typically for that verification. And that I think... Um, is really helpful for us to know because it tells us what kinds of issues are the ones that are likely to potentially cause problems and points to some of the ways that we can deal with that problem by knowing, okay, if the big outlets have their pieces readily accessible, if they're showing up as top search results, then people are equipped to deal with it. Right. Well, I, one of the, I think, the more thoughtful conclusions uh, after looking at the Russian interference in the United States in 2016 and beyond was the the move by whether it's foreign states or even domestic political actors who, who are up to no good is to exploit existing weaknesses and tensions in the society. I mean, one of the, I think, I think Alex is right that Canada fares better. I think one of the reasons is that compared to the United States, our fundamental divisions um, are more manageable, <laughs> or they're channeled through institutions in a more productive way, in a less divisive way, so that it, it's much easier to pick off the United States, I think, with this stuff. But nonetheless, uh, to the extent that it's possible to to stir up trouble, uh, you, you certainly can do it with misinformation, disinformation, malinformation. Uh, so then it falls to someone to mediate that. And I want to read this uh, quotation from uh, Karen Cornblow and Ellen Goodman, who wrote the, in the piece in the journal, uh, in the publication Democracy, not the Journal of Democracy. It's called Democracy, a journal of ideas. Uh, we are flush with democratic discourse. <laughs> uh, so they're talking about uh, who ought to manage misinformation, disinformation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they are expressing a concern that, well, on the one hand, you, you don't want governments to do it because there are concerns about free speech. And on the other hand, you don't want private corporations to do it. And they write, um, the flaw with these censorious remedies is this. The focus is on the content that the user sees and not on the structured characteristics of social media design that create vulnerabilities. Content moderation requirements that cannot scale are not only doomed to be ineffective exercises in whack-a-mole, but they also create free expression concerns by turning either governments or platforms into arbiters of acceptable speech. So we have this problem where there's nonsense online. Some of it is just false information. Some of it is information that someone ought not to have that they've obtained and are releasing for strategic reasons. And some of it is is information that's not true that someone is sharing um, uh, despite uh, not knowing better. Uh, they, they certainly um, don't intend to circulate the information, but it happens to be false. That has a, an effect on the public space. And we say, okay, well, we need someone to police that. Now, Alex mentions 
journalism, and I think traditionally you would expect a journalist to mediate that through editorial standards, and those are in decline insofar as the media is in decline, not the standards, the, the presence of, of media. So who, who does it fall to? Um, do, the, do the prisoners police themselves? Is it us? Well, you just absolved me from responsibilities. So yes, <laughs> I'll, I'll take this question. Well, you're off. outnumbered. No, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to absolve journalists. I, in fact, in in many ways, I think journalists are the first line of defense, um, but they're increasingly outnumbered. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, I mean, it's a it's another uh, big question. Um, I mean, certainly, um, I like to think that my tribe does what it can, but mm-hmm. you know, uh, fact check articles don't get a whole lot of clicks. To be honest. Um, you have to be interested in, in the facts <laughs> before you click on a fact check article. I mean, Daniel Dale is, uh, for instance, I mean, he's now with CNN, I think. He is, yeah. Uh, he is a prolific fact checker of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. He d- has been doing a very good work on that for a long time. Does that ultimately make a difference? I, I mean, I, th- I think Daniel uh, does fantastic work. Um, we miss him at the star. Yeah. Um, but um, whether or not... Um, Trump's 2,372nd falsehood has changed a Trump voter's mind. That'll be the one. That'll be the one. Finally, we got to to, uh, 2,700. We we forgive the the first 2,700, but 2,701. I mean, yeah, that could be just negligence, the first 2,700, (laughs) but then it starts to look uh, purposeful. Um, No, I I, I think that, that journalism, of course, has a role to play in this space. But I, I want to go back to, to my initial point is that we as citizens have a role to play. Yes. Um, uh, you, you mentioned somebody who shares, um, you know, dubious information uh, without necessarily knowing it's dubious information. Well, I think that that's where we need to attack this problem. Sure. We need not only uh, media literacy, but digital literacy, as Elizabeth mentioned. Um, and we have to take responsibility as citizens for what we for what we put out into the ecosystem you know I, I think it's been made abundantly clear that that Twitter and Facebook are not meaningless diversions that we just you know read while we're on the bus um, they're a crucial space in democracy as terrifying as that may yes, be yeah. um, so I think that that we need to get back to a notion of citizen responsibility for what we say and do in our political space. And like it or, or not, that's on the internet these days. Pushing against the ocean a little bit, though, right? I mean, sure, the, but yeah, you know, I'd, I'd rather say that I push. Yes, no, me too. I mean, I, I, no, no, I, I agree. I, the The challenge is that we are, and I agree that ultimately the personal responsibility is central. There's always going to be more of us than there is of any other group because mm-hmm. we comprise the group. Uh, but you know, confirmation bias, for instance, is a powerful drug. I was thinking about that in the context of this Maxime Bernier People's Party of Canada billboard that was paid for by a third party went up. Then there was a photo of it, a photoshopped photo of it going around that someone had had photoed it into Ass Man. Mm-hmm. Or Ass Immigration, what was it? I can't remember, something like, say no to Ass say Man? Say no to Ass Man. Say no to Ass Man. And everyone loved it, obviously. Uh, nostalgic <laughs> as we I are. I don't think Bernier loved it. Well, except for Bernier and, <laughs> and his... He's the of free speech. Yeah, yeah. that's up. Well, I have to say, he is, he is in some ways consistent on that, but although not always. Uh, but it was Photoshopped. Mm-hmm. And there's that old line about, you know, I think it's Mark Twain, that a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth gets its pants on. Mm-hmm. And so how do, you, how do you push back at this confirmation bias? I, I don't know. Not to that, I've, to, 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 to all of it. I got a real big yes. rant on a lot of these okay, things, fantastic. but I'm going to try and rein it in. Buckle up. No, no, don't, don't <laughs> on our account. Don't on our account. Um, I, so maybe we start with 
are citizens responsible? Are, are we the ones who need to be taking ownership over what's getting put out here? And I think yes, but I think we also need to recognize that these citizens exist in a larger ecosystem, that we yeah. do have a choice about what to put out there and what not. We do have a choice about when to go and check information and when not to. And, and we have to take responsibility for those choices that we're making. But we can only check and verify things if there are ways to do that, right? right? So even if the vast majority of fact checks don't actually get viral spread, even if the vast majority of fact checks aren't reaching the people who all saw the original piece of disinformation, if they're the top search result, they get used when people care enough about that uh, issue, okay. right? And so, yeah, it's a smaller bit, but it's the bit where there is actually people who care and who might be changing their mind, right? So the way the system's created, we end up potentially offering a really, really important tool. Right. And I think journalism plays a really crucial role there. Other fact-checking organizations also play important roles there. But this, does that put us at the mercy of the algorithm on the search side? So that's the next piece of uh -huh. this, right? So we've got citizens, we've got journalism, then we've got these companies. And we've already talked about the fact that, you know, capital drives them, not social good. And so there, I think we've got a couple of different issues we need to tackle. One is this idea of, you know, content moderation is going to enable them to be this arbiter of truth. Fundamentally, social media and search are about moderating content. Their right. entire business model is to surface as much information as possible and then decide which of it is most important for us to see right now in that moment. Right. We love them for that. They're super useful. <laughs> There's yeah. way too much information in the world for us to actually deal with nobody's, on a daily basis. Nobody's this. clicking through to page nine of the Google search. No. Right. Most people, if they don't see it in the first two or three results, abandon. Right. <laughs> okay. Right? Like... We need Google to do Google's job yes. when it comes to searches, and they've made a lot of money because they do it pretty well. Yes. Right? They killed a lot of competitors because they did it well. Yes. You can find some really weird stuff, though, on, like, page four of your Google search, right? Like, yes. you never know. No one should ever go past page no, three. Do no, 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 don't no, 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 do no, no, no. it. Three yeah. taking your life into stuff. your own hands <laughs> after sure. page yeah. three. Um, <laughs> so because these are essentially content moderation machines that we need... Yeah. The idea of, can we just put this on citizens, I think is irresponsible of us to focus solely on the citizen function because these companies are going to continue to do what they're doing and they have a massive amount of power here yes. and we need them to have that power, right? Uh, yeah, and I, I, I didn't intend to put it all on the citizen, I think, but I think that that is a, a, an important component. Um, and and present some some interesting policy questions for governments, right? Um, what is the curriculum like for you know elementary school students mm. on on what the internet is, how the internet works? Um, you know, I have kids, and uh, there's a Netflix show called Storybots, and they they just did a very quick primer on how the internet works. Mm. And it was mind-blowing to me. Like, I never learned any of that. Yeah. Like, you know, I, yeah. we grew up in this sort of system. So, so I think that there's a policy, uh, you know, question for governments in terms of how they help citizens navigate this world. And then, of course, on the other side, the companies have an immense amount of responsibility for this. In terms of the tension between social good and capital, I'm, 
optimistically, you know, the journalist will be the optimist here. <laughs> I want I want to believe that the com- the companies, the big companies, are starting to realize that social good and and capital interests are not necessarily sure. mutually exclusive. And in fact, there might be a very good reason from a capital perspective to maintain some semblance of democratic capitalist order. Right? They ha- they have a they have the goodwill line on their budgets, right? Sure, they, abso- they do, yeah. absolutely, the, absolutely. The brand is valued at. Something. But I mean, you don't even they don't even have to be altruistic. They want to keep us as good consumers, right? Yes. And a certain amount of societal stability is required yes. to be, have a consumer society. Um, so I think that that there's a confluence of interests there that it would be in their interest um, to be more responsible when it comes to this. And I, again, the optimistic journalist here, I want to believe that companies are are coming to realize that, and especially since 2016, are are starting to take baby steps, um, but 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 steps nonetheless. They may even be re- weaponizing uh, regulations, though. I, I you know. In reference to another project, was talking to one researcher who said to me that established tech companies love the idea of some regulation because it acts as a barrier to entry to other companies, right? And one of the concerns is that as powerful and useful as Google is, it's monopolistic, and so is Facebook, and so is Twitter. I mean, they get good at horizontal integration. They also get good at vertical integration. And so now we have these monopolistic entities who will then cooperate to some extent with governments to be regulated because it prevents their competitors from from competing with them. And and I worry a little bit that, because I agree with you that there is some enlightened self-interest, but at what point do they become so big that they get to decide... What that what that's going to look like, despite the fact that it affects the public sphere. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think back to a speech that uh, our foreign minister Christia Freeland gave a few months ago. You know, talking about you know big tech. Pr- primarily, when we talk about big tech, Twitter's kind of off to the side. We're talking about Facebook, Google, and and uh, and Amazon, but uh, of them being sort of the new standard oil. You know, the right. new sort of um, you know monster. Uh, that has you know tentacles in every aspect of the economy and of, and of our lives. Um, I think there's there's something to that. Obviously, you know uh, the situations have uh, the situation is different um, <laughs> today than in Standard Oil's day. Um, but but I think there there certainly is something to that in terms of you know this this conversation around antitrust. Mm-hmm. Um, you know at what point um, there are meaningful barriers to what Amazon can do. Um, in the marketplace. I think that's a conversation that we're going to continue to have for the next couple of years, at least. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, the example of of political advertising is an interesting one here. So in Canada, we had our new Modernization Elections Act, and that requires websites with a certain amount of traffic to create an ad registry. Facebook said, yep, okay, we'll do it. Twitter has said, yeah, we're going to do it, but theirs looks a little different from what really the legislation says it should, and there's questions about how that'll actually play out. Hmm. And Google's like, we're out. Yeah. And Google's been like, yeah, we're out in a couple of different jurisdictions. They're just not going to host ads. They're just not hosting Political ads. ads. Yeah. They're preparing to do it in the U.S. election, though. And yeah, I think sure. this is where it gets more complicated because it's not just antitrust at the Canadian stage, it's in a bunch of different countries. And at the end of the day, the largest markets are the ones that they're going to have to care most about. These are companies with limited resources. They have to make choices. Canada doesn't have that much power. The U.S. does. The EU does. China does, right? right? And so then we end up having to deal with the choices they make based on those international rules rather than ours. 
which sometimes align and sometimes don't. It's right. a good, and I think the Google the Google example is is really really interesting because essentially they're they're complying with the law by choosing not to comply with the law. Right. If you're not going right. to host ads, you don't have to keep an ad exactly registry. right. Yeah. Um, and and you know it's interesting to hear that they're going to create an ad registry in the United States. Um, obviously, there's a lot more money in political advertising in the United States than mm-hmm. there, are, there is in Canada. I, I looked yesterday, and over the last 30 days, according to Facebook's ad registry, the Liberal Party spent something like um, $100,000 on advertisement. You know, Google uh, doesn't need that $100,000. You know, so 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 it's interesting. You know, it, it's an interesting question of what middle power or smaller countries like Canada do when an uh, international company like Google decides not to comply with mm-hmm. your law and, you know, takes their ball and goes home. Um, you know, that's a, that's a big problem. On the, on the EU and the U.S. sort of, you know, they, they seem to be on divergent courses when it comes to this. And Canada really, you know, in conversations with people who think through this in, in the government, Canada really seems like it's being pulled in, in those two divergent yeah. directions. Um, you know, we could, if we had another hour, we could talk about all the the digital chapter in NAFTA and what that means for this debate. We could talk about, um, you know, the 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 ethics committee recommending very very GDPR like uh, measures for Canada that will probably not be implemented. Right. Um, you know, it just it, it it feels like Canada is really. Uh, trapped between these two, um, you know, opposite directions. It seems to me that that's true on on a number of files. I mean, I, you know, there is a bigger in a way, it's, movement. It's distinctly Canadian. I was yes, say, this yes, is it is. Our yeah. identity being trapped between the EU the, and the yeah. US. Yeah, the mushy yeah. middle. Yeah, it really is. And but I mean, I also think we're going to be caught there on. Well, we are caught on trade, and at some point on defense. I mean, if uh, certainly we're not going to be able to rely on the United States as is. Uh, that relationship will will change. It's already changing. But I, I'm glad you mentioned that because does that imply that we need some sort of global movement or global effort to create something? I've heard digital Geneva Convention. I've heard some sort of international governing body like a subsidiary of the United Nations or something in the, in the spirit of the United Nations that can act as a block to negotiate and set standards with these companies and with one another. Because right now... Companies are negotiating jurisdictions off against one another, um, and and states are engaging in effectively in warfare with one another. I mean, Russian Chinese attacks are effectively acts of war, uh, or acts of espionage at the very least. Um, arguably, what Russia did could have been perceived as, as an act of war. Um, don't give them any ideas. No, I'm just saying. <laughs> just, I don't think we've made good sense of what that is sure. yet. Um, it, you know, if you if Think during the Cold War, a bunch of agents on the ground had gone in to Moscow or gone into Washington and, and stuffed ballot boxes. Um, I wonder what that would have looked like. But but the, whatever, whether it exceeds that threshold or not, the question being, well, what do we do about it globally? Is there movement? Is there a body? What, how do we negotiate as Canada? Because you're right, there's 36 million people. There are some cities around the world that approach that many people. Yeah, well, I mean, this has totally worked perfectly for climate change discussions. Yes, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I mean, in a, in a policy options piece, Fenwick McKelvey and Taylor Owen and I talked about the Google example pulling out from the ad space. Um, and we think of that as complying with the law. It is either you create the registry or you don't host the ads. 
Like right. that is not complying with the law would be hosting the ads anyway and not having the right. registry, right? And and what we talk about in that piece is okay, this actually could be really great for Canadian focused businesses that want to find ways to host political ads and mm-hmm. and make that their business model and then they're Canada focused and then they end up being regulated in the Canadian context and they don't have to deal with the international component. Right. Uh, that creates issues when you think that about how a lot of tech startups are just so drawn to the Silicon Valley frame of will it scale? Canada doesn't scale enough. Right. Again, we need another hour of the podcast to right. really <laughs> to really dig into that. But at the end of that piece that we wrote, we argued for yeah, we need international collaboration. Yes. What exactly that looks like, I don't know. And I think that it may, in fact, be stepwise. It may be, okay, in Ireland, there was a push about political advertisements, and then in Canada and in Seattle, where we've seen Google pull out a bunch of times. But all of that is building towards what the next group of countries do and say. And eventually, Google is going to make a decision about the U.S. and show us what that ad registry actually looks like. And then all of those pieces together start to build out what the international frame is going to be. Right. I want to say two things, again, as the, the resident optimist on this podcast. Um, <laughs> you mentioned climate change and international cooperation. I mean, it took a long time, but we did get to the Paris Accord, you know, the United States notwithstanding. So, so you know, again, um, you know, perhaps there is hope on something as crucial as, you know, our shared reality mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that, that someday cooperation, um, at least by a critical mass of, of developed economies, um, um, comes together. Um, the other, the the part on the the part that complicates that I think is you know we're thinking about this as you know Google ads and Facebook news feeds. Countries are now thinking about the internet in terms of war, mm-hmm. um, and um, you know it's it's uh, I think it, it, it's probably a barrier to that international cooperation um, in an age where states are trying to have that bleeding edge advantage over yes. their competitors um, in order to be able to, you know, prepare in a, in a war space. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we did end up with the Geneva Convention. So, so I'm, certainly, I'm, I'm certainly optimistic, again, that, that some kind of shared set of standards can be found. But I think that national security and, and defense component of what the Internet is now um, is, is perhaps an impediment to, um, you know, all joining hands and singing Kumbaya. That, that I mean I think that's it though I mean, is that you know, the problems <laughs> the problems that we're facing are uh, share ancestry with problems that that political entities have been facing since the Roman Empire or sure. before that I mean the, in some senses the problems are very 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 old their expressions are very new I mean the speed reach volume ease. Uh, the, and costs have changed. I mean, you can do a lot more with a lot less and a lot easier. I mean, sure. think about if, if 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you'd wanted to disrupt an election of a major uh, power, that would have been very, very difficult to do. I mean, we used to drop leaflets um, or have spy stations. Mm-hmm. Now you can do it from a basement or a bunker, whether it's a troll farm or whatever it might be. I mean, think right, of, but a troll farm is still a ton of resources. Yes, sure, sure. And I, like, I think we have this sense of the internet makes it all cheap and easy. And if you talk to any like political communication strategist who's in charge of uh, the online presence of a candidate or a party, 
they are going to tell you that it is not cheap. They get volunteers to do the work and it doesn't get done the way it needs to be done sure. for the precision to actually have the impact that you right. want. Like this is, even if it's in a basement, it can still be an expensive operation. Sure. Well, also, I mean, the, in some sense, it might the, the, the volume of information might be one way to counteract nonsense is that, I mean, if, if it is drowned out, then what are you going to do? I mean, so this, but this is where I think to come Just back build around. A bigger fire hose. Well, this is it, though. <laughs> this is effectively it. But the fire hose might be might be journalism, though. Might might it not? I mean, how much of this comes down to saving, preserving, enhancing journalism that can act as as a counter agent to all of this? I, I think quite a bit of it. Now, that isn't to say that we need to go back to an old model where there's a handful of of established newspapers that do the mediating work. Uh, there are lots of new, I think of The Logic, for instance, mm -hmm. or the transformation that's happened at BuzzFeed, mm -hmm. uh, who, who do especially good work on misinformation, disinformation, malinformation. So we, we can imagine a new model um, that coexists alongside traditional media mm -hmm. that pushes back, I think. Yeah, it's too bad you, you don't want to go back. I'm all for being an old-timey newspaper bearer. Yes, like well. cigar and, you know, yeah. three-piece suit. And the Spanish-American War. And the Spanish-American War. And the good old Spanish-American War. Have you ever been to, uh, if, if anyone's ever in California, the William Randolph Hearst Castle is in southern central California. It belongs to the state of California. You left it to them. And it is one of the most bizarre things you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, that much power. Um, he had zebras. Has a... Kept zebras. zebras until the economy turned. He had zebras. Oh yeah, the zebras are always the first. It's the to first go to in go. A recession. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I forget the question. <laughs> no, so, so does journalism have have a role as well as a bulwark against uh, the the sort of increasingly fraught public spaces online. I mean, I mean, I like to hope so. Yeah. Otherwise, there's not much use of me coming into the office every day, right. you know? Like, so, so uh, you know, I think journalists would, would, would widely hope that um, the information that they're putting out there, that they spend time and effort and research and make sure is rigorous and accurate, um, um, you know, is an antidote to some of the crap that you read on Twitter. Yeah. Um, but the one thing I, I want to say about the sort of the evolving, certainly there are new models, um, but you know, the, the Toronto star is what I know best mm -hmm. and the Toronto star is big enough that we can afford to have an investigative team yes. of quite a, a good investigative yes. team with quite a lot of people in it who can spend months on single stories. You know, when we, when we, uh, wrote the Paradise Papers stories. Yeah. That was four months of my life, right? Yeah. And because we're, we're a big enough operation, because there's enough scale, you know, the newspaper can keep coming out while people do that kind of work. Yes. And I, I, that's, that's what worries me in the kind of the new model, um, the smaller scale digital sort of journalism is that, you know, without that ability to keep the lights on on a day-to-day -day basis, you will not have that sort of in-depth right. public interest investigative work and yeah. I think that we'll, we'll, we'll be poorer for it um, and yeah. not just because I'll be poorer for it because I don't have a job <laughs> but, but, no, but I, I think society will be poorer for it if we can't afford to to keep that capacity in our in our sort of democratic discourse. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. I'm really frustrated by the framing of, do we want the, the old version or the new version? Mm -hmm. Because I think what we actually want is some outlets that have really deep benches for their investigative team and can really put those resources in and, and have the funding they need and support they need to do that. 
I think we also want these other kinds of outlets that are doing quicker, smaller pieces that are maybe producing information that doesn't seem like news the way we might have been taught news is supposed to look. Mm -hmm. uh, BuzzFeed started out as a good example of that. Their reporting has been shifting over time, um, but still the tone of a BuzzFeed article on disinformation or the kinds of things that Jane Letvinenko does mm -hmm. when a hoax is spiraling through Twitter, that type of journalism looks very different. Yeah. I think it's valuable. Rapid response. Yes. Right? And it's, it's not just rapid response, it's different formats, it's different contexts. I think the podcast world is also changing yeah. the way we're interacting with political information. And those are helpful inputs in this system when we also know that there are Facebook pages that have been spending a lot of time and energy creating an audience so that they can share sometimes partisan, but often at least political content out, mm -hmm. you yeah. know? And so... I think what we need to be doing is thinking about how do we make this ecosystem one that offers citizens tools to get information that they trust and that they can verify at the different points where it matters to them. Now it'd probably yeah. be an appropriate time to plug that the Toronto Star and BuzzFeed News are working together on just this issue right now. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a really cool collaboration. Check yeah, out. and we do write we do write very differently, but we've we've somehow come together. Yeah, Craig Craig Silverman and Jane and and us. So maybe the future does involve co-production. These co-production co yeah, models. Absolutely, I'm a big I'm a big big believer. Um, I think that not only does it bring different techniques and perspectives and tone, perhaps, but it also you know imparts some of those tools and ideas in in the respective news organizations. I think I I think I, well we, we were talking about the internet but let me talk about journalism. Um, I think that that the the competition among journalists is um, and and news outlets the sort of tribalism mm -hmm. um, is a luxury we can no longer afford. Sure. Um, because uh, we're in serious trouble. So the more that we can work together within reason, I mean, the Star and the Globe are probably not going to partner up because uh, we're direct competitors. Um, but the more that we can work together in that sort of to further that public interest, I think uh, is is something that that is absolutely crucial in in in, in, their, in our current state. Well, speaking of of the changing nature of of media, we've just gone just over 40 minutes talking I think rather thoughtfully about a single topic for <laughs> that the, was a single topic for the for the for a single well yeah we, we've 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 been swimming around the same pool but we've been in, in different ends of it somewhere in the Spanish-American war somewhere that took that was the deep end and that's episode one my thanks to Dr. Elizabeth Dubois and Mr. Alex Bootlier Open to Debate will come to you every two weeks to discuss pressing issues unbound from the 24-hour news cycle. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Thanks. Also, on a special note, I'd like to offer an additional thanks. In 1962, John Glenn became the first American to orbit Earth. He was asked how he felt prior to his launch and said, well, I'd feel exactly how you'd feel if you were getting ready to launch and knew you were sitting on top of two million parts, all built by the lowest bidder on a government contract. I'm pleased to report that we don't have to worry about that, in part because this is a different sort of launch, but also because of the commitment of the team here at the 2020 Network, including Alex Patterson, my producer Mira Ahmad, and Sarah Turnbull, who made this show possible before starting a new career journey. A special thanks to them for climbing into this capsule with me.